You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Right now, though, we're in for a special treat. Uh, We have Dr. William Federer with us today. And uh, I tell you, this man is brilliant. Uh, Just hearing him speak, he's like a savant. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I think I flunked history, uh, and I need the refresher, right? Uh, He is the brilliant historian. Um, uh, Just uh, an amazing man. Uh, He started the... uh, American Minute um, uh, radio program, and a, a, he's a uh, has a uh, television program called Faith in History. Uh, all of these are broadcast nationally. He's a prolific author. He's written over twenty books. Uh, this book here, America's God and Country, has sold over five hundred uh, five hundred thousand copies. Uh, just a, 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 like I said, a prolific writer. Thrilled to have him with us today. You're going to be richly blessed. Uh, will you welcome Dr. William Federer? Bill, so to have Thank you, you Pastor. Thank you, Pastor. Great to be here. Uh, Bill's books, uh, like this one, are going to be available after the service. If you'd like an autographed copy, Bill would be out there and uh, signing signing books. And uh, Bill is going to give a different service, next service, if you'd like to come back. Uh, Bill, what are you talking on next service? St. Patrick and how he evangelized Ireland, that Ireland was ruled by the Druids. That's where Halloween came from. And uh, he was kidnapped, went there when he was 16, escaped. And when he was 40 years old, he was called back by a dream. And by the time he was done, he baptized 120,000 people and started 300 churches even like World Book Encyclopedia said he found Ireland heathen and left it Christian. And so we're going to talk about his story and how he was a man who had great faith and stood up to uh, a lot of corrupt leaders, and uh, you'll be inspired. Wow, really great. So come back for that. That's going to be fun. Right now, though, you're in for a thrill, the history of the Bible in America. Uh, Bill, thanks so much for joining us, man. Blessed to have Thank you, you Pastor. Yeah. Well, I want you to know the Mission Church family, how much I respect your pastor, Pastor Dave, and uh, I had the privilege of going online. By the way, you have a great website, listening to some of his sermons, and I'm like, whoa, he's great. You have an absolutely tremendous pastor, and join me in thanking the Lord for your pastor right here. And so I'm, uh, if you're visiting and I mess up, please come back next week and you'll hear Pastor Dave. And, um, <laughs> Now, uh, I did a book called Who is the King in America? And it's, it's you, but I'm going to explain that in a little bit. Another book is called Believe, where I present the gospel sort of in a C.S. Lewis type format. I'll share a little of that at the end of the service today. And then a book that my wife and I put together called Miracles in American History. So these are stories from our country's past. Revolution, War of 1812, Civil War, Barbary, Pirate War, where there's a crisis, they pray and have courage and things turn around. And so my wife's like, that she said, I heard him for 30 years and I decided to pick out the best stories and that's where it looks hopeless and they have faith and courage and things turn around. So anyway, well with that, let me get into my talk today. So I decided I would go back to the beginning of the history of writing. Uh, Sumerian cuneiform on clay tablets, the Mesopotamian Valley. 
and it was take a stick, poke it in clay. That's the beginning of writing around 3300 BC. And then um, you have uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics were invented around 3000 BC. Chinese characters around 2600 BC. And uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, an astrophysicist in his Cosmos TV series, stood in the desert saying it was here between the Tiger, around 5,000 years ago between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers that we learned how to write. So even secular history says that writing was invented around 5,000 years ago, and we're 2080, so that would be around 3,000 BC. And uh, Franklin Roosevelt said 5,000 years of recorded history have proven that mankind has always believed in God in spite of the many abortive attempts to exile God. Another author, Richard Overy, wrote The Times Complete History of the World. He said, no date appears before the start of human civilizations around 5,500 years ago in the beginning of a written or pictorial history. So we'll round it out to 6,000. Um, 6,000 years is not that long. It's only 60 people living 100 years each back to back. How many of you have met someone who's lived 100 years or close to it? Maybe a grandmother? We're talking 60 grandmothers, and you're all the way back to the beginning of recorded human history. It's not that long. But now that we have 6,000 years of records, let's look at them. What do they show? They show the most common form of government to king, that power wants to concentrate. And if these kings didn't die off, any one of them would have been happy to conquer the world. And so the first one was Nimrod Tower of Babel. Josephus, the Jewish commentator, said Nimrod wanted to build the tower so high that if God destroyed the world again with a flood, he could survive on top. So it had this defiant, in-your-face attitude toward God. And that... Um, uh, he made everyone in town bake bricks and bring them, or he would kill them. So it was oppressive over man. God comes down, confuses the languages, and the people scatter. And it's almost like every generation since has tried to rebuild the Tower of Babel. Because every generation, and every time it comes around, it's a little bit worse because with military advancements, the kings can kill more people. <laughs> and, um, and so I uh, put a thing about the Terminator, you know, they try to destroy it, it keeps coming back. And anyway, so uh, in nature, there's something called phi or the golden ratio or the Fibonacci sequence. It's a rate of geometric expansion that you observe in a seashell or a tornado or a galaxy. And I thought, has anybody um, looked at it regarding these kingdoms? And so uh, a rate of expansion. So you got the Nimrod Tower of Babel, but then around 2500 BC is Gilgamesh, king of Uruk, or Iraq, and uh, the oldest story ever written is the Epic of Gilgamesh, about a thousand years before Moses, and it's the story of uh, this guy who went on a long journey to meet somebody who survived the global flood. It's Noah, he called them Uptanapsharin or something. Um, but over a hundred ancient civilizations have flood stories in their ancient, ancient past. It's like, gee, maybe there really was a flood. I think there was. And then 2250 BC, you have Sargon of Acadia, conquers a bunch of walled cities from the Persian Gulf to the Atlantic. And then you have 2,000 years of Egyptian pharaohs, 5,000 years of Chinese emperors. Anyway, you go through it all. The most common form of government in world history is kings. And they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger until finally the king of England had the biggest empire on the planet. The king of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy with him at the top. Right? And now uh, anybody that can do plotting knows that if none of these guys di had died, any one of them would have been happy. But at some point, it's going to max out on a global level. And Jesus says, wheat and tares grow together till the harvest. And um, anyway, now why does this keep repeating itself? Because it's in each of our own fallen, selfish human nature. So you uh, put some, uh, St. Augustine called it libido dominandi, the lust to dominate. You, you put some Babies in a playpen, one takes the rattle from the others. You put some kids on a playground, one's the bully. You put some junior high girls in a clique, one's the diva. You put some, uh, 
You put some people in the woods, one of them is an Indian chief, and you put them in an inner city, one of them is a gang leader. So the default setting for human government is gangs. And um, uh, a king is just a glorified gang leader. And so <laughs> it's a hierarchical system. If you're friends with the king, you're more equal. If you're not friends with the king, you're less equal. If you're an enemy of the king, you're dead. It's called treason. Or you're a slave, right? And people say, I thought slavery started in 1619. No, wherever you had the first king on top, you had slaves on the bottom, right? And um, so what if you were the king? That'd be pretty nice. And then you have a sister, and she gets married, and has a kid, and now he's a teenager, and he's drinking and partying and hits someone with the car, and he's facing prison time. And your sister comes begging to you and says, you're the king. You're not going to let my little Johnny get locked away, are you? What are you going to say to your sister? Well, I'll let little Johnny off the hook this time, but don't let it happen again. Guess what? As soon as you say that, you are the corrupt dictator. You just sent ripples through your kingdom that if somebody's family or friends with the king, they get special treatment, right? And if they're not family and friends, they don't get it. And if someone wants to point out your favoritism, you're going to be tempted to want to shut them up. It just happens. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so power wants to concentrate, right? There's even the movie, The Lord of the Rings, where Gandalf tells Frodo, always remember Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. Power wants to concentrate. And then the movie goes on. Uh, Frodo, Gandalf says, don't tempt me, Frodo. I dare not take it, the ring, not even to keep it safe. Understand, Frodo, I would use this ring from a desire to do good, but through me would wield the power too great and terrible to imagine. What's he talking about? Every now and then you get a good king. And he wants to concentrate power so he can do good more efficiently. But he doesn't live forever. And all that concentrated power gets handed off to some son or grandson that's a lousy ruler and gets oppressive. What's the Bible example? Joseph in Egypt, a godly guy, concentrates power into the hands of the Pharaoh. And what did that particular Pharaoh do with the power? He fed the children of Israel, gave them the best land to Goshen, gave them jobs taking care of his cattle. But then there was a new Pharaoh that did not know Joseph. And he used all that concentrated power to oppress them, make them slaves, throw their sons in the Nile River. Right? So that's the dilemma. You get power to concentrate. And so um, the devil took Jesus to the top of a mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, all this authority I will give you, for this has been delivered to me. I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you will worship before me, all will be yours. And Jesus answered, get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. But you read it, you think, that's pretty audacious of the devil. Him saying he, ought, he had all the kingdoms of the world, right? Those 6,000 years of kingdoms. What is one common denominator in all these kingdoms? They're ruled through fear. That's the ultimate thing. You do what the king says or he ultimately can kill you. And, um, and so you think, well, when did the devil get all these kingdoms? When Adam sinned, right? Adam was in charge of the garden. We know that because he named everything. Naming means you have authority over. You have kids, you get to name your kids. You have authority over your kids. Adam was in charge of the garden, but the Bible says to whomever you yield your members' servants to obey, to him you are a servant. The moment Adam obeyed Satan, he was posturing himself as the one taking the orders and the devil as the one being in charge. So the devil usurped the power and ruled through fear. And, um, but Jesus said, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. But ye shall not be so. He that is greatest among you, let him be as he that doth serve. I have him among you as he that doth serve. 
So we're talking kingdoms, 6,000 years of kingdoms, and Jesus is saying, I've got a kingdom, but mine is different. Mine's the opposite. Instead of top-down rule through fear, it's bottom-up, through love, through serving, right? And um, so it's a different polarity. It's a different flow of power. So these kings who rule through fear, it's called the divine right of kings. They claim that the creator gave all the power to this one guy, and he dispenses it to all these lowly people down below. And um, here, here's the king of France, King Louis XIV, the sun king. He said, I am the state. Talk about an ego. And then he says, the administrator said, King, you can't do this particular thing. It's illegal. He says, it is legal because I wish it. It's like, okay, I get it. The, the law is nothing more than the king's wishes. And he just happens to have a really powerful army to make you obey. And then here's King James, Jamestown named after him. He says, kings are God's lieutenants upon earth, sit upon God's throne. The king is the overlord of the whole land, master over every person, having power over the life and death of everyone. Can you begin to see why America's founders wanted to break away from this guy? And so the king of England was a globalist. He was a one world government guy with him at the top. The sun never set on the British Empire, India, Australia, New Zealand, Hong Kong, British Guyana, Canada, Barbados, Bermuda, Jamaica, and America. And so kings have subjects who are subjected to their will. The king issues a mandate, you obey, right? But democracies and republics have citizens. The word citizen is Greek. It means co-sovereign, co-ruler, co-king. You're a citizen of America, you're a co-king of America. And so um, it took centuries for America to break away and flip it. And um, here's James Wilson, a signer of the declaration. After a period of 6,000 years since creation, the United States exhibit to the world the first instance of a nation assembling voluntarily and deciding that system of government under which they should live. He uses the number 6,000 and says something unique happened here. And then Daniel Webster, Secretary of State, says miracles do not cluster. What has happened once in 6,000 years may not happen again. Hold on to the Constitution for if the American Constitution should fail, there'll be anarchy throughout the world. Why would there be anarchy throughout the world? Because for 6,000 years, people have suffered under the thumbs of these dictators, and they thought, gee, if only we could rule ourselves without a king, wouldn't that be great? And in America, we did it. And if we blow it, there's nothing left for humanity to look forward to, this side of heaven, than what? Communist Chinese dictators, Russian dictators, Ayatollah Iranian uh, dictators. It's going to be a gang war on a global scale, and human rights will get crushed again. And so um, how did America come about? I go through history, and I talk about how Islam conquers all these areas that used to be Christian, and uh, all of North Africa used to be Christian, all the Middle East, Syria was the first Christian country, um, and then they invade Spain, and then they're conquering in Europe. They even invade Rome and trash the bones of St. Peter and St. Paul. And so the Pope built a 39-foot wall around the, the Vatican. And Anyway, and as they're conquering, uh, the Turks convert to Islam and conquer Turkey. All seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation were wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And so the, um, the Greek Christians beg the West for help. The West send help. It's called the Crusades. And uh, uh, the Crusades end. The Muslims conquer Constantinople. And that cuts off the land routes to India. Remember Marco Polo, the game the kids play around the pool? Marco Polo. He, in the 1200s, he went from Venice, Italy to China. And he brought back, said how the Chinese invented spaghetti noodles. The Chinese invented gunpowder. The Chinese invented paper currency. You got paper currency in your wallet? It was the Chinese that invented that. 
The Chinese invented a pinata. They've invented a compass, the wheelbarrow, all this stuff. And, um, and Marco Polo was put into prison, and he's reciting all this to his cellmate. And the guy writes it down. And uh, the book was nicknamed Il Milliones, which means the million lies. They thought it was all like made up, you know, uh, like, you know, Paul Bunyan's blue ox, you know. Um, anyway, uh, so Columbus, when the Muslims conquer Constantinople, he looks for a sea route to get to India and China. And he sails west and he runs into us, right? And um, he thought he made it to India, so he names the people he met the Indians. Think of it. We never would have called Native Americans Indians had it not been for Islamic Jihad. And uh, anyway, so the, the Muslims now control this whole huge area that used to be Christian, and uh, they enslave lots of people, and an estimated 100 million, Africa, 80 million. And so the king of Spain is trying to stop him. So we're talking kings are the most common form of government in world history. In the 1500s, the two biggest kings are the Muslim sultan and the king of Spain, and they're having a face-off. And uh, in the middle of that, the Reformation starts. And we have Europe now splintering into these groups. And so the king of Spain is faced with a double dilemma. He's got this uh, Muslim invasion on one side, and he's got this Protestant Reformation on the other side. And he tries to stop both of them for decades and realizes he can't. And so he decides he needs the Protestants' help. And so in 1555, he does the Peace of Augsburg. And in it is a little Latin phrase, cuius regio eus religio, which means whose is the reign, his is the religion. So in other words, look, Protestant king, believe whatever you want. Let's just work together against this Islamic invasion because they sort of want to kill us all. And it worked and stopped the invasion, but in the next century, different kings believed different things. And so whatever the king believed, the kingdom had to believe. And so northern Germany and Sweden were Lutheran. Switzerland was Calvinist. Scotland was Presbyterian. Holland was Dutch Reformed. Greece was Greek Orthodox. Italy, Spain, France, Austria, Poland stayed Catholic. Uh, there were some groups that didn't get a country, like the Mennonites, and they were invited over to be sort of a buffer between the Russia and the Ottoman Empire. And then England stayed, uh, became Anglican. And so again, it went from all Catholic Western Europe, Islamic invasion, the king trying to stop the Reformation, stop the Islamic invasion, can't, makes a deal with the Protestants, and now we got all these countries of Europe believing different things. And so if you didn't believe the way your king did, you were persecuted, you fled. And so suddenly Europe's thrown into this mass migration of people shifting around for conscience sake. Those are the ones that spilled over and founded colonies in America. And um, so uh, the king of England was Henry VIII, and he was married to the daughter of the king of Spain, Catherine of Aragon. And after 18 years, she does not have a son. So Henry decides to divorce her. The Pope won't recognize the divorce because she is, after all, the daughter of the most powerful guy in the world, the King of Spain. And so Henry decides that um, he's going to divorce her anyway, marry uh, Anne Boleyn, and uh, his advisors tell him, hey, if you're serious about breaking from Rome, you need to stop using that Latin Bible. Get yourself an English Bible. The German princes have Martin Luther's German Bible. That helped them to break away from Rome. You need to get yourself an English Bible. Henry says, fine, get me one. Well, it just so happens a few years earlier, um, by the way, Henry makes himself the head of the Anglican church. 
So the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop of York, and bishops and dioceses and suffrages and deaneries and vicars and curates and rectors, and your relationship with God is through this hierarchical structure. And um, he went on to have six wives, divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. <laughs> he, was, he was not a really nice guy to be married to. Uh, he ended up being around 400 pounds. He only ate meat. He thought vegetables were sissy food, and, and he, um, he got gout in his leg. And um, So his advisors tell him to get an English Bible. He says, fine, get me one. Just so happens a few years earlier, he had William Tyndall burnt at the stake for translating the Bible into English. William Tyndall's last words were, Lord, ope the king of England's eyes. Now suddenly the king wants an English Bible. So they take Tyndall's work, polish it up. They call it the Great Bible. And they present it to Henry VIII, and he likes it, and he orders a copy of it put in every church in England. And this is the first time the common people of England get to read the Bible in their own English language. It was called the Chained Bible because it was enormous, and they chained it to the pulpit. And people would take turns reading it. Your turn's up. It's my turn. <laughs> right? I mean, they're like excited they could read it. And the king dusts his hands. He goes, that's it. We broke him from Rome. Got our English Bible. But something unexpected happened. People began to read it and began to compare what's in this Bible to this king divorcing and beheading his wives. And so a group starts that wants to purify the Church of England, and they're nicknamed the Puritans. The king doesn't think he needs any purifying, so he persecutes the Puritans. And there's another group that said it's beyond hope of purifying. We're just going to simply separate ourselves. We're going to meet in secret in barns and basements and small groups, and they call themselves separatists, and we call them pilgrims. And um, so the, uh, the, the king didn't like these pilgrims, and so they fled. And these Calvinists, these pilgrims, they began to say, okay, we're not going to submit to the king's church. We're not going to do this hierarchical thing. We're going to do a body-type thing, right? Um, they called it a congregational church where instead of the clergy-lady model, where the clergy does all the ministry and the lady is lazy and watches, it's the congregational model where the pastor teaches everybody to have their own relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins. And then the pastor coaches the church members to get in the habit of reading through the Bible. Right? Every, line by line, go through the whole thing. And it's easy nowadays. You can do it. I, I got, I've been doing it for decades now with Bible Gateway. You put in your email address, and it sends you the Bible reading for the day. Little Old Testament, New Testament. In a year, you've read through the whole thing. Right? Anyway, so the pastor gets everybody to get in the habit of reading through the Bible for yourself. And then get in the habit of praying. And then the pastor helps you to plug into the body and do something. Nursery, children's church, junior high, right? outreach. Because anything that's alive takes in and gives out. For any muscle to grow, it has to be exercised. You can't just sit there and listen and do the hierarchical thing. Well, they do all the ministry. I'm just going to watch. No, it's like God wants to pull you involved. And that's why I love your pastor Dave so much because he has a heart to see you be all that God made you to be, right? He teaches you great messages and then he gives you opportunities to let the Lord work through you and the body of Christ grows and grows and grows. Anyway, so um, we uh, uh, talking about this. So you had the King of Spain fighting the Muslims, fighting the Reformation and... Uh, in 1572, the king of Spain sends the uh, Iron Duke of Alba to stop the Reformation in Holland. It's called the Spanish Fury. Kills a lot of them. And uh, then sends his armada to England. And, um, and then you got the Queen of France, Catherine de Medici. About 15% of France is Protestant. And she doesn't like him. 
So she wants to do a wedding of her daughter, Margaret, to the number one Protestant leader, Henry of Navarre. Big wedding in Paris. All the Protestant leaders are there. And she then, a couple days after, pulled the chains across the street so the carriages can't go out of town. And she sends her soldiers house to house to kill all the Protestant leaders, about 30,000 of them. And uh, it's called the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. And then she goes around killing all the rest of the Protestants that are in France, and they all flee. And so you got a problem. What do you do with uh, the Bible verse, Romans 13, that says you're supposed to submit to the government? All governments set up by God. What do you do when the, when the government actually wants to kill you? What are you supposed to say? Okay, here are my ki- wife and kids. Go ahead and kill them. It's like, hmm? So in the French-speaking area of Switzerland, you have a guy named John Calvin. And he says, when kings disobey God, they automatically abdicate their worldly power. He says, um, we are subject to the men who rule over us, but subject only in the Lord. If they command anything against him, let us not pay the least regard to it. Sort of like the Bible says, children, obey your parents. But what if the parent tells the kid to sell themselves into prostitution and kill the neighbor? Is the kid supposed to obey? No, the kid obeys the parent as long as the parent's telling him to do something that lines up with God's word. So you obey the government as long as the government's telling you to do something that lines up with God's word. And so you had these Calvinists began to look into how to have a government without a king. And so this is what the pilgrims embraced, this concept. And these Calvinist Puritans look back to the Bible, but what part of the Bible? The first 400 years out of Egypt before King Saul, right? So it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel. It's a 400-year period where you have millions of people and no king. And because we looked through all 6,000 years of history and saw the king's the most common form of government, ancient Israel stands out as this anomaly. It's like, okay, we got kings and pharaohs and Caesars and and here you have Israel, a nation with millions of people and no king. And it worked because every citizen was taught the law and every citizen was personally accountable to God to follow the law. So Israel was able to have self-government with no king. And um, so the Puritans look back to this. It's called the Hebrew Republic. And these Puritan scholars were called Christian Hebraists because they studied Hebrew. (laughs) And um, so King Saul is the difference between Europe and America. The Christian kings of Europe looked to the Bible as their authority, but they looked to the King Saul and on. The Christian founders of America looked to the Bible as their authority, but they looked to the pre-King Saul period. This 400-year period where there's no king and it's work because every single person's taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law. So King Saul's the dividing point between Christianity in Europe and Christianity in America. And um, so King Henry, he gets this English Bible, he dusts his hands, and he says, we've broken from Rome, got our English Bible. Um, but all of a sudden, um, people began to read it and began to start coming up with all kinds of different beliefs. And he's like, no, no, no. You can read the Bible in your own language, but you still have to believe what I tell you to believe. I'm the king. And so you do not make up prayers because you could make up one that's wrong. So the government wrote all the prayers down. It's called the Book of Common Prayer. If you like praying, you just open it to the right page and read the prayer. And if you're caught with a little group making up your own prayers, the FBI will kick in the door and arrest you and drag you before the star chamber. It's a room that had stars on the ceiling. It's sort of like a January 6th hearing room, right? And, um, <laughs> and they'll brand you on the face as a heretic and twist your arm and then put you in a cell where you just waste away for weeks and months and years. 
And um, then they passed the Five Mile Act. If you're caught preaching within five miles of a town, you're a criminal, off to that star chamber. And this, they uh, passed another called the Conventicle Act. Came from the word covenant, where Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm there in the midst. They had a lot of these in Scotland, small groups. They'd meet together, and they would covenant together. We're not just meeting together with the Bible, but we're, we're, we're friends, we're family, we're, we're, we're spiritual family. We're going to care for each other. We're going to covenant together. And the king didn't like them. And uh, he would bust up these groups. They later changed it to the riot act. So the police would break up your little Bible study and pull out a piece, piece of paper and read the riot act which says everyone must immediately disperse or we're going to put you in that, <laughs> that January 6th cell and you'll rot away. And it was so serious, it went into, into our vernacular. Read them the riot act. And somebody that was caught during this was John Bunyan. He spent 12 years in prison. And that's when he wrote Pilgrim's Progress, that famous novel. And the king also banned coffee houses. Now we're getting serious. <laughs> Because you could be meeting together, talking bad about the king and planning an insurrection. And so they would arrest these. So the founders of the Baptist faith at this time, three guys, John Smith, John Merton, Thomas Hellwise, not the Pocahontas John Smith. This is another one. Um, so they started the Baptist church in England. And this book, it says, with fresh light upon the Pilgrim's Father Church, because the Pilgrims branched off of this Baptist church. And um, so John Merton is put in this Newgate prison. They don't feed you in the prison. You have to have some friend that misses you and brings you food. So a friend brought him a bottle of milk, but instead of a cork, it had a wad of paper. And when the guard wasn't around, he unfolded the paper, took a splinter, dipped it in the milk, and he wrote out his pamphlets. The milk dries, it's clear. He folds it up, sticks it in the empty bottle. The guard takes it, and his friend takes it home and unfolds it and holds it above a candle, and the heat of the candle turns the milk brown, and they can read what he wrote, and they typeset it and print the pamphlets. And the government's like, how's he getting that out of the prison cell? <laughs> and uh, so the early Baptists called it the uh, milk of the word because he wrote it in, in milk. And, um, and what, this is one of the things he wrote. No man ought to be persecuted for his religion. Another thing he wrote was um, uh, the practices of Christ and his disciples teaches no such thing as compelling men by persecutions and afflictions to obey the gospel. Jesus didn't force anybody to follow him. And if he didn't force anybody to follow him, we can't. Right? He didn't um, uh, said go to a town, preach the gospel. If you don't receive, you go to another. He didn't. It's not like Islam where you wage war on the town. And um, another Baptist founder was Thomas Hellwise. He dies in the Newgate prison, and he said the king is a mortal man and not God. Therefore, he hath no power over the mortal soul of his subjects to make laws and ordinances for them to set spiritual lords over them. Um, for men's religion to God is betwixt God and themselves. The king shall not answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and men. In other words, if the king can stand there on the day of judgment and answer for why you believe a certain thing, fine, believe whatever the government tells you to believe. But if the government's not going to be there on the day of judgment, you are accountable to God for your own conscience. Kings didn't like that. They wanted you to believe what they tell you to believe. And so this conscience thing was sort of a big deal to the founders in America. There's Roger Williams that founded uh, Rhode Island. And um, William Penn said he was in the Tower of London before he founded Pennsylvania. And he says, force makes hypocrites. Tis persuasion only that makes converts. Right? God wants you to believe by appealing to your mind and your heart, not because you're afraid you're going to get a part of your body chopped off. And um, so these pilgrim separatists decided to flee to Holland and then from there flee to America. And they were going to go to Jamestown, started 14 years earlier. It was a king-run colony. 
But they thought, well, we'll be 3,000 miles away so we can do our pilgrim stuff and not be noticed. And they're sailing across and they get caught in a storm. They get to Massachusetts. They're 500 miles away from Jamestown. And they try sailing down the coast, but it's really shallow. 3,000 ships have sunk off the coast to Cape Cod and the pilgrims almost sink. The captain goes back and to Plymouth Rock and says, off the boat. And these pilgrims are like, we got a question. Who's going to be in charge? There's no king appointed person in our little group. We were going to go to Jamestown and submit to the king's government. You're telling us to get off. Who's going to be in charge of us? They do something unique. They give themselves the authority to start a government. It's called the Mayflower Compact. The word compact means covenant. It says we, in the presence of God, covenant ourselves together into a civil body politic. So you have a little church group covenanting itself into a civil body politic. Right? You have a church group creating a political group. Now, why did they do that? To enact just and equal laws that shall be thought most meet, unto which we promise all due submission. Simple, revolutionary. It was a polarity change in the flow of power on planet Earth. In the womb of this little Mayflower was conceived the child of self-government. The whole world's ruled by kings and pharaohs and Caesars and Kaisers and sultans and czars. And here you got this little group and they're ruling themselves with no king person with them. And it's the difference between a dead pyramid ruled by fear top down and a living tree bottom up where every root and every tiny capillary root helps suck in nutrients to keep the tree alive. Every person has to be involved. Where did they get their idea? From their church government, the congregational model. Everybody's involved. Everybody does something. It's not the hierarchical model. And um, so uh, they got their idea from their pastor, John Robinson. And that painting is in our U.S. Capitol Rotunda in Washington, D.C. And uh, so Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. The word in Greek is ecclesia or ecclesia. Ek means out of, ecclesia means a calling. And in the Greek city of Athens, they had 6,000 citizens. And the, uh, they would call them out of their homes to the Agora marketplace so they could figure out what to do in the city, right? And so somebody's got to fix the wall. Somebody's got to fix the bridge. Somebody's got to teach the kids. Somebody's got to do And they would divvy up responsibilities amongst equals. And Jesus chose that word to say, upon this rock, I'll build my ecclesia, my church, my body. He's talking about the body of Christ. Everybody does something. An eye, an ear, a foot. And he that's faithful in the very little gets entrusted with a little bit more, right? And so it's a, uh, a body concept. And it's called a covenant form of government. The word federal, like federal government, the word federal means covenant. We have a covenant form of government. So what's the covenant? You get rights from God. You are fair to your neighbor because you're doing it as unto God. You get blessings from God. You share them with your neighbor in charity because you're doing it as unto God. It's a way to have a government of people covenanting themselves together without a king, a bottom-up form of government. And uh, Margaret Thatcher, your founding fathers look after one another as a matter of duty to their God. Here's Puritan founder John Winthrop. The love, this love among Christians is a real thing, not imaginary, necessary to the being of the body of Christ. We are a company professing ourselves fellow members of Christ. We ought to account ourselves knit together by this bond of love. We must make one another's condition our own. Rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us. Right? And so it's a voluntary thing. It's not socialism where the government takes away your stuff and redistributes it to all their supporters. Right? It's a voluntary stuff where God blesses you and then out of your own stuff, you voluntarily want to take care of your neighbor. 
And um, so uh, the uh, king didn't like that, and he persecutes them. And so he got this flood into New England of these pastors and their churches. So you have a pastor, John Lothrop, and his church found Barnstable, Massachusetts. And a pastor, Reverend Roger Williams, and his church found Providence, Rhode Island. And a pastor, John Wheelwright, and his church found Exeter, New Hampshire. And uh, last week I spoke someplace, and the guy came up and goes, I, I pastor a church in Exeter. We bought the old church that used to be in. He knew all about that history. And then the Reverend Thomas Hooker and his church founded Hartford, Connecticut. And so this is unique on planet Earth. Pastors and their churches founding cities, coming up with the laws for the cities. And so Thomas Hooker, um, he and his church found Hartford. And the church members say, Pastor, can you do a sermon on how we're supposed to set up our government? So he gives a sermon in 16. 38, title, The Foundation of Authority, is laid, firstly, in the free consent of the people. This is reflected in our declaration, government from the consent of the governed. And this is different from Europe, because the kings of Europe could care less about your consent. <laughs> All that matters is their consent. And um, his sermon goes on, the privilege of election belongs to the people. And this is reflected in our constitution, we the people. And um, so... Here's Coolidge. Reverend Thomas Hooker of Connecticut, as early as 1638, said in a sermon, the foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. The choice of public magistrates belongs unto the people by God's own allowance. This doctrine found wide acceptance among nonconformist clergy who later made up the Congregational Church. And so his sermon is written down. It becomes the constitution of the colony of Connecticut. And they use it from 1639 up until 1818, way past us breaking away from England, Connecticut is still using Pastor Thomas Hooker's sermon. And um, so here's a plaque in England. Thomas Hooker, founder of the state of Connecticut, father of American democracy. Here's another plaque. Thomas Hooker, Puritan clergyman, reputed father of American democracy. Here's a statue of Thomas Hooker holding a Bible on the old Capitol grounds in Hartford. At the base, it says, leading his people through the wilderness, he founded Hartford on this side. He preached the sermon which inspired the fundamental orders. It was the first written constitution that created a government. Here's another plaque. Here, Minister Thomas Hooker, peerless leader in New England thought and life in both church and state. Here's a pastor talking about church stuff and state stuff. Another plaque in Hartford. Thomas Hooker, leader, preacher, a statesman who based all civil authority on the free consent of the people. This is so important, they chisel it in stone. We have 6,000 years of kings. It's all top-down. You obey mandates. You obey mandates. You obey mandates. And here we have, it's the consent of us. It's a polarity change. And it came from this pastor and who got it from the Bible. Here's another plaque. It says, Thomas Hooker preached his famous sermon. The foundation of authority is laid in the free consent of the people. And then representatives of the people adopt his sermon as the fundamental orders. What do they say? The people can join ourselves to be as one public state or commonwealth. Who are the people in Hartford? Well, it's pastor and the church. So you have a church group conjoining itself into a public state. Looks like the Mayflower Compact, right? The, the, the church group forming itself into a public state. Now, why did they do that? To preserve the liberty and purity of the gospel of our Lord Jesus, which we now profess. They picked the form of government that would best preserve the preaching of the gospel. And um, here's another plaque. They have lots of plaques. This one says, Thomas Hooker's congregation established the form of government upon which the present constitution of the United States is modeled. Do you grasp the significance of this? His church government, everybody's involved, becomes the city of Hartford's government, which comes the Connecticut, to which comes our constitution, we the people, right? 
And um, so in New England, instead of separation of church and state, it's the pastors and their churches that created the state. How could you say pastor don't preach on politics when it's the pastor's sermon that's their constitution? How could you say church members don't get involved in politics when all there was in Hartford was the church members? There were like no non-church members to be lazy and let them run stuff. And the word politics just comes from the Greek word polis, which means city, like Minneapolis, polis is city, and politics is the business of the city. And so um, they had one building called the Meeting House. You go to Boston, there's the Old South Meeting House. That's where the pastor would teach the Bible, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. The word synagogue means meeting house. That's where the rabbi would teach the law, and that's where they would gather together and do their city business. I mean, why build a separate building just to talk about a different topic? So when the Revolutionary War starts, the British send over a military governor, Thomas Gage, and he outlaws meeting houses. Democracy is too prevalent in America. And um, so anyway, Calvin Coolidge says, in order that they might have freedom to express these thoughts and opportunities to put them into action, whole congregations with their pastors migrated to the colonies. America started as a church plant. <laughs> and um, anyway, so... Um, I'm going to skip past some stuff for the sake of time. And uh, lots of good stuff. So where did they get their ideas? Ultimately, ancient Israel. So the U.S. Constitution was written, but it needed to be ratified by nine states. They had eight. New Hampshire was in line to be the ninth, but it was about to vote against it. And so Harvard President Samuel Langdon shows up at the New Hampshire Ratifying Convention in 1788. 1788, and gives an address titled The Republic of the Israelites, an Example to the American States. What was, and it goes on, instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, we may substitute the 13 states of the American Union and see this application plainly. So what was the, uh, and then after that, they vote, and they ratify it. And so what was this Republic of the Israelites? It's that first 400 years out of Egypt. And so let's take it apart. This is the beginning of the concept of equality. Right? There's no king for 400 years. Wherever there's a king, if you're friends with the king, you're more equal. You're not friends with the king, you're less equal. You're an enemy of the king, you're dead or you're a slave. Well, Israel had no king. And the law specifically says God is not a respecter of persons. This is the beginning of the concept of equality on planet Earth. And then they're tolerant. Here, they had strangers amongst them, but they didn't force them to get their lamb and drag it to the temple. And then ancient Israel was the first nation with private land ownership. You see, wherever there's a king, you never really own the land. It's always conditional of you staying on the nice side of the king. You cross the king, he'll take away the land and kill you. But in ancient Israel, the land was permanently titled to each family. If you own land, you can accumulate stuff. The Bible called that being blessed. And you can give away some of your stuff. The Bible called that charity. Israel, the children were taught the law. That's why God chose Abraham, because he knew he would teach the children. That's why today the battle is over who gets to teach the children. And um, since all the children were taught, everybody knew the law, and everybody helped enforce the law. There was no police. It's like somebody cuts you off, and you honk, take it upon yourself to honk the horn. Or maybe a mom watching some neighborhood kids. She has no problem correcting somebody else's kid. In ancient Israel, everybody corrected everybody else the whole time. And... Um, and since everybody was taught the law, everybody helped enforce the law, everybody was in the military. So every male was armed with a sword upon their thigh, and they were ready at a moment's notice to defend their wife and kids and community. And um, Israel had no prisons. Remember in Egypt, Joseph was in prison? Well, in Israel, when a crime was committed, 
You got the elders and the accused, and you had the trial immediately. And then there was a city of refuge that they could run away to during a capital case. Israel had a bureaucracy-free welfare system. What's that? In Israel, you need food. The government will give you food in exchange for your cattle, your land, your lives. But in Israel, when you harvested your field, you left the gleanings, the corners for the poor people to pick through. Like Ruth, this way the poor were taken care of in a decentralized manner. And, um, and then Israel got to choose their own leaders. So here Moses spake unto the children of Israel, how can I alone bear your burden? Take you wise men and understanding and known among your tribes. And I'll make them rulers over you. You know the people that hate covetousness and you just can't bribe them. In other words, it was an election process within the tribe. Here Moses, this is the guy we picked. And um, anybody could be raised up into leadership. Gideon from a nobody family. Here's Deborah, a woman, becomes a national leader. Not because she's related to royalty. She just knows the law and she's honest. And the reputation spreads. People make their way all the way across the country. She sits under a tree and here's her case. Where else in the world could a woman become a national leader who's not related to royalty? And um, so Harvard president Samuel Langdon talked to the New Hampshire ratifying convention. The Israelites may be considered as the patterns of the world in all ages of government on Republican principles. Republican means the people representing themselves. Um, from abject slavery, a mere mob, to a well-regulated nation under laws far superior to what any other nation could boast. Think of it. They go from 400 years of slavery, they can't even read. And suddenly they get downloaded the most unique form of government on Mount Sinai, so totally different than everything else that's going on in the rest of the world, and it's based on every single citizen being taught the law and personally accountable to God to follow the law? It, it had to be God, right? I mean, it wasn't like the Greeks where it's trial and error, trial and error. No, it's a one download. And then Israel was the first nation that could read. Samaria had 1,500 cuneiform characters. Egypt had 3,000 characters. China had 10,000 characters. When Moses comes down the mountain, he has only a, a law with 22 characters. First letter is the left, second letter Beth. So easy to learn, kids could learn it. Israel was the first nation in the world with a literate population. And um, anyway, so, uh, and then the last thought is, so, so you have the law, but why follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? And uh, Israel had the key ingredient. So you take the power of the king who rules for fear, you give it to the people, it's chaos and anarchy unless the people are taught the law. And um, uh, what motivates them to follow the law? Uh, I take, use this little example. Imagine downloading a behavioral app. We all have GPS apps that tells you where to turn. Imagine you could download a behavioral app. It would tell you how to act in real time. Right? Monitors your voice volume and your blood pressure and sees you're about to lose your temper. Alert, don't lose your temper. Monitors your bank account and sees your geo position in the store with expensive stuff. Nobody's in the vicinity and it runs this algorithm. You're being tempted to steal. Alert, don't steal. Right? Imagine an app in real time. Well, that's what the law was and the Israelite priests were the computer geeks that help you to download the app. Right? And then, but the question is, why would you follow it? What would motivate you to follow an internal moral? Israel had the key ingredient. There is a God who is watching everyone. He wants you to be fair, and he's going to hold you accountable in the future. You're about to steal. Nobody's around. You know you can get away with it. And you think, then you think, God's watching me. He wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable. Maybe I should hesitate stealing. And it creates something in your head called a conscience. If everybody in the country believes this, you can maintain complete order with no police. 
maximum liberty. Women can go anywhere without fear. You don't have to lock your doors. And so Israel had this, so when America formed, and we used ancient Israel's republic as the model, and we say one nation under God, it's more than just a nice little acknowledgement. It's this, everybody walking around thinking, God's watching me. God wants me to be fair. He's going to hold me accountable in the future. It motivates us to have self-government. Now, God knew the Israelites would sin. And rather than them walk around the rest of their life with a guilty conscience waiting to get judged, once a year they would have the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They would offer the sacrifice, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and everyone's sins and the whole nation were forgiven, and they could all start the new year off with a clean slate. Obviously, that is foreshadowing Jesus. He is our atonement. He washed away our sins, not just for the past year, but for our whole life and for all eternity. You know, um, I uh, don't have time to get into all the rest of my slides, because I have lots and lots of slides. Um, <laughs> but I go through world history and begin to show how unique America is. And, um, but you just can't help but think, okay, 6,000 years, let's look at an even bigger picture, and that's uh, eternity. And the thought is, why did God make us? And, um, and let me get to a slide here at the end. Uh, so, in 2003, they focused the Hubble telescope on a spot in the sky where there was nothing. Which is sort of hard to do when you look at it. Anyway, the spot was the size of a grain of sand held between your fingers at arm's length against the night sky. Tiny spot, nothing there. After 11 days, they developed the images. In that spot was 10,000 galaxies with hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. It's called, it is called the Hubble Ultra Deep Space Field. And this is the picture. It's the furthest picture ever taken away from planet Earth. Every dot you see is a galaxy with billions of stars. And light travels in waves. And by the way, this same picture, they have it with the Hubble with the James Webb Telescope, now looking at it in greater detail. And, uh, and light travels in waves, with blue being the fastest and the red being the slowest wave. And so they saw the red shift, which means galaxies are moving away from us. And they begin to look in other directions and other directions, and now they see that the observable universe is estimated at 93 billion light years across, and get this, still expanding at the speed of light. And the largest star they found so far is Stevenson 2-18. It's a super gas giant. It's so big, if you were to place it in our solar system, it would engulf the orbit of Saturn, the sixth planet from the sun. We're the third planet from the sun. Could you imagine one single star that enormous? And God made it all, and he made you. Why would he make you? What could you possibly offer a being that is that powerful? Nothing, except maybe something. What's a galaxy anyway? It's a bunch of rocks. Hot rocks, cold rocks, vaporized rocks, molten rocks. A rock cannot love you. So it's, it's almost like God said in somewhere in eternity past, that, been there, done that, I can make everything. I would really like someone in my image that could love me. Now it gets interesting because love by definition must be voluntary. The moment it's forced, it evaporates. If God were to force you to love him, even in the littlest way, he himself would know he's forcing you to love him. And he would know your response is not a love response. So he will never force you to respond. But he wants your love. 
You know, I looked up the word angel in the King James Bible. It appears 289 times. Never once does it say the angels love God. They worship him. They glorify him. They praise him. They smite his enemies. They deliver his judgments. They deliver his messages to like Daniel and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're heavenly witnesses. Jesus says, I'll confess you before the angels. They rejoice when a sinner repents. But the word love is not used in any verse in the Bible to describe an angel's relationship with God. The word love is used all throughout the Bible to describe our relationship with God. Men and women, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Right? Because he said his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. Jesus rises from the dead, says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? We are beings created with the ability to love God. God doesn't need your love. He's not incomplete in any way. And your love somehow completes him. He doesn't need your love, but he wants it. Parents don't need the love of their children, but they want it. And the more you love someone, the more you want that someone to love you back. God loves you infinitely. He has an infinite desire for you to love him back, but he will never force you. Because the moment he forces you, it will no longer be love. And then there's the second thing. He has to hide himself behind his creation. Because if he ever revealed himself to you in all of his universe creating omnipotent eternal power brighter than a trillion trillion suns, your response if he didn't melt would be like the apostle John in the book of Revelation, I fell at his feet, is dead. It would be instantaneous and involuntary. In the presence of such power, and God's like, I can do instantaneous and involuntary all eternity long. Been there, done that. I'm interested in this voluntary thing. And so he hides himself behind his creation. People say, if God's real, why doesn't he show himself? Because the moment he shows himself, your free will's gone. In the presence of such power, boom. I was trying to think of a way of explaining it. Imagine a billionaire has a son who goes to college. And he flies in on his private jet drives up in his Lamborghini. He's got gold rings, Rolex watch, fancy clothes. He's going to have every girl on campus wanting to meet him. But if he lays all that aside and drives up in an old clunker, he's got holes in his jeans, the uppity girls are going to ignore him. But then there's a girl that likes to study with him in the library. And they eat together in the cafeteria. And they become friends. And she takes heat from the clique for hanging around this nobody guy. But she believes in him. They fall in love. They get engaged. And then one day he says, hey, I want to take you back to meet my dad. And they're like driving up to this castle mansion estate. And the girl's like, whoa, you didn't tell me about all this. He knows that she loves him for him, not because of all of his stuff. Jesus laid aside his divine glory, was born in a manger. It says in Isaiah 53 of the Messiah, there was nothing in his countenance that would make us want to desire him. He only wants those that love him for him. So God created us as beings with the ability to love God. He hides himself so we have the opportunity to love him with a free will. But there's one other thing. He's just and he cannot help it. Which means he has to judge every sin. If God does not judge a sin, by default, he's giving consent to the sin. It's called the rule of tacit admission. It's in a wedding ceremony. The pastor says, anybody that's against this wedding, speak now or forever hold your peace. If you're sitting there silent, 
holding your, your silence is giving consent to the wedding. If there are sins going on and God is silent and not judging the sin, by default, he's giving consent to the sin. And if God gives consent to one sin, one time, he denies himself. He ungods himself. He's kicked out of heaven. He, den- he denies his just nature. And he is not going to deny himself. And he is not going to get kicked out of heaven. And he is going to judge every sin. You know, in a mathematical equation, there are constants and variables. In the equation of redemption, there is a constant. God is just. Forever was, forever is, forever will be just. And he cannot change it. Even if he wanted to change it, he cannot. He is just. It is his very nature. He's a judge. He's a God of rules. Everything he makes, laws of planetary motion, laws of gravity, laws of optics, laws of physics, everything he makes has laws. He is a God of laws. And he has laws for human behavior. We just have the choice as to whether or not to follow the law. So in the equation of redemption, there's a constant. God is just. The variable is who takes the judgment? Us or a substitute? So God came up with the substitute, his own son, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God, would come to earth and become a man. And only as a man could God hang on a cross and die for our sins. Charles Wesley wrote the hymn, Amazing Love, How Could It Be That Thou, My God, Shouldst Die For Me? So God is completely just in that he judges every sin, but he's completely love in that he provided the lamb to take the judgment for the sin. Abraham and Isaac are going to the top of Mount Moriah. And Isaac says, Father, we have the wood for the sacrifice, and we have the coals for the sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? Abraham says, Son, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And it has a double meaning. God will have a ram up in the bush, but the other is God will provide himself as the sacrifice. And that's what happened. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the only begotten son of God, in the plan of redemption that was hidden from ages. It was a hidden plan. It says if the princes of this world had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. The apostle Paul calls it the mystery of the gospel. In this hidden plan, Jesus became man. He became the lamb like the song we sang, the blood, and he took the judgment for all of our sins upon himself. And you think, okay, God's just. There's billions of us. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve hell. And there's only one of him. How can can that balance? God's just. It has to balance. Jesus is divine. And he suffered judgment in a dimension we will never be able to comprehend. It says a day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Jesus experienced that day on the cross as if it was a thousand years. You know, you read through the book of Revelation. I'm still trying to figure it out. But one thing seems pretty clear. It's God that's pouring out the vials of judgment in the book of Revelation. Lamb breaks the seal. Angel throws the center down. Angel blows the trumpet. Angel pours the vial. Why is that? This is the final judgment. God is a just God. He has to judge every sin he missed along the way. So you can't get 10,000 years into eternity and say, God, there was a sin way back then and and you didn't judge it. You were silent. Were you giving consent to that sin? Is there a part of you that's unjust we don't know about? Uh Uh-uh. It says the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And the angels cry out, righteous and true are your judgments, O Lord. Nobody's going to question for the rest of eternity that God judged sin. But in that sense, Jesus had the book of Revelation judgment poured out on his head. He took the judgment for every sin that everybody would ever do upon himself on the cross. 
experienced it as if it was a thousand years. That's why he was sweating drops of blood. And out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, he became the Lamb. This way, you and I can approach this universe-creating, omnipotent, all-powerful, all-eternal, and all-just God and not have to worry about being judged. The Lamb is his plan. The Lamb is God's way to love you without having to judge you. It's his plan. He came up with it. Right? So you can call him Abba Father. And you can enjoy being with him for all eternity. Him loving you and you loving him back. And not having to ever worry about being judged. Because all the judgment you deserve went on Jesus. That's why we sing praise songs to Jesus. That's why it's, we're called by Jesus' name. We have his name written on our forehead. We, we sign our prayers in the name of Jesus. We're approaching this all just God, but we're covered with the blood of the lamb. And then, so instead of you doing good works like Cain, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God through faith in the blood of the lamb. And then he fills you with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit does the good works through you and loves the unlovable and rescue those unjustly sentenced to death and defend the defenseless. And, and, and it's actually fun. <laughs> There's actually nothing more fun in your whole life than letting the God of the universe by the power of the Holy Spirit live and love through you to have a purpose in life. So instead of you doing good, good works, hoping to earn brownie points with God, you're already accepted by God. And it's him doing the good works through you and you, his yoke is easy and his burden's light. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come up and, and as we close, let's just say a prayer. So close your eyes and, and if you're here this morning and if you, you've not yet put all your faith in Jesus, the lamb that God provided, do that today. Just pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your plan of creation, that you created me. And thank you for your plan of redemption, that you sent your son to take the judgment I deserve upon himself. Jesus, I thank you that out of love for the Father and out of love for you and me, for, the, for those of us here in this room, and those watching, Jesus, you became the Lamb. You experienced the wrath. It says in Isaiah that it pleased the Lord to crush him. You were crushed like a grape. You were crushed. Your blood was shed. You took the judgment so that we will never be judged that the fear of judgment is gone, that we get to live in the love of our Heavenly Father. We, we can call you Abba Father, Daddy Father. Lord, if there's anyone here today that has not yet put all their faith in you, I thank you for touching their heart, that this is their day. This is the day of redemption. Today, if you hear his voice, harden out your heart. This is the day that God has chosen for you to have the, the veil pulled away from your eyes and you see that the God of the universe loves you and created you and he covets your love back but he'll never force you.
but he wants your love. And he made a way that you can approach him without having to worry about being judged. Just accept his love and let it bounce back to him. You may freely share Thank this you, message Lord. with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.